Okay, this morning, um, we do have um, some sheets, some note sheets out. We tried to put them on most of the chairs. Um, and there's, I'm pointing your attention to it. You may or may not be a note taker. But we're going to ask you to do some very specific application at the end to actually think about some important ways to apply the Word of God to your life and to actually do some writing on that. So if uh, just want to make sure you get one. If you don't have one at your seat, I'm sure somebody around you or a seat behind you would have one. Um, this morning, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 6, if you want to turn there. Ephesians chapter 6, where Paul's going to talk about family. Um, I mean, do, do you not have a sense in your gut? Do you not see the reality that family life in the U.S. has been radically changing for a generation, maybe a little bit more? Um, there's just so many statistics. The reality that two out of three of the children who grow up in this church, when they leave home, are going to blow that off and are not going to follow the Lord, that just by itself is humbling. Um, I think knowing that just 20 years ago there was a poll taken of parents of how many of them felt like that they gave adequate time to their children, and 50% said so, but this same question was asked a year ago, and only 25% of parents felt like they gave adequate time to their children. Um, Same survey, 20 years ago they were asking, like, do you feel like you have good relations in your family? Um, was a 75% who said, yes, that's dropped below 50% now. So there's just a lot going on. And I think especially if you're here and you're a parent, um, I think you know just the weight of being a parent, and it is not an easy thing, right? I think all of you know that. And I think sometimes parenting can feel overwhelming. I remember the first time I held Carissa, and I'm like, Lord, what do I do with, with this child? And with each child, I felt that And I felt that way for, I still feel that way with adult children, Lord, how do I continue to parent well? So, um, so that's why I love a six, Ephesians 6, verses 1 to 4, and I'd like you to turn there. Um, I'm not going to, this passage will be up somewhat during the sermon, but keep your Bibles open so you can look down and reference. And what I love about this, in a really compact four verses, um, Paul gives the basic building blocks, like the foundation of what it means to have a healthy, flourishing family. And even this week, as I looked deeply into this, I just came to it's, I see it as so profound and came to love this text even more. So would you um, stand and read with me? I'd like us to read Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 to 4 together before we look at it. So starting in verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with the promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. And this is the word of the Lord. So please be seated. Um, Before I get into this text, I need to talk a little bit about context. Two things. First, I want to talk about the cultural context. Because if you remember, we read Scripture with first century eyes. We want to understand the cultural context that's going on. And so when looking at this, actually from chapter 5 verse 22 down to chapter 6, verse 9, is what scholars call Paul's household code. Um, I'm saying that slowly because, trust me, saying household code fast is really hard. It's like a tongue twister. In fact, I had first service try it. I want you guys to try it with me. I want you to say household code three times fast. Are you ready? Household code, household code, household. Oh, you guys are great. I I struggle with it. Uh, Household codes were very common in the Greco-Roman world. 
They defined the expectations of a society on every member of the family, and it talked about their place and the role that they played in that family. And I want to tell you that virtually all of those codes that we have access to, they always speak to the person who's living under somebody's authority, and they never address people in authority. Really interesting. Never address the person that was in authority. And so Paul here takes this very common device that they all would have known in that day. He puts it in a letter to Ephesus. He also put a household house or whatever that thing is, okay, HC, I'll just say HC, okay. He put it in Colossians, um, and, in doing, and he changed the form. And in doing so, he was saying, here is how you as a follower of Jesus, here's what family life looks like for us living in a Roman society, because it's different how the Romans lived. And that actually was extremely important. Um, Michael Parsons, who was a scholar of kind of that time period, he said this about Roman households. He said that they had become battlefields of contempt and antagonism in the time of Jesus that there was nothing but virtually negativity. And so Paul, he's speaking into that kind of environment, people who came out of that environment, and he's saying, here are the patterns, the, the sense of responsibility and mutual respect that should be in a family of people who follow Jesus. So that's the cultural context. Um, the context in Ephesians, I think, is also really important. So this household code starts in 522. Right before that is a really significant part of Ephesians, where Paul says in 518, he says, be filled or be continuously, be ongoingly filled with the Holy Spirit. And after he gives that command, in the Greek, he has four participles. And the four participle phrases, that's not significant to you, but by doing the participles, what he's saying is, is if you're filled with the Spirit, here are the four things that will be evidenced or that will come out of life in the Spirit. The first one is, is that you will, um, you will speak to each other in songs and hymns and spiritual songs. Secondly, you will sing in your heart to the Lord. That will be an evidence of the Spirit's life in you. Third, you will give thanks to the Lord in all things. You will be a thankful person. And the fourth one that he says in 521, just before the household code, is he says, and you will submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And that's really significant because by putting that, the household code right after that, Paul is setting up and he's framing, when he talks about a family, framing it by that particular verse. Um, and that's why some translations, like in the NCV that we're doing in the New Testament, they will actually put verse 21 under a family heading. They'll actually put it down with the family section because most people see that as the over the umbrella that speaks to everything he says about how a household is to operate. Um, and I want to tell you, this is really significant, that whole thing about mutual submission, um, because we're going to see Paul does not get rid of authority structures in the family. He doesn't throw those to the side. Um, but Paul, by saying that first, and by the way he talks, you'll see to fathers, um, he's saying that the only legitimate follower, the only legitimate authority under Jesus is servant authority. That's the only kind of legitimate authority to God. He's essentially, by saying that submission to mutual submission first, he's saying the same thing Jesus said in Matthew 20, where Jesus says, you know the rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over people. But it will not be so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be a servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man get, did not come to be served, but came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This whole idea of mutual submission in relationships, even in the home, I think in Philippians 4, 3 to 7, Paul, I think, defines this really well, where he says, we do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, we value others above ourselves not looking to our own interests, but to the interests of others. In our relationships with one another, we have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped on, but rather he took on 
He took on the nature of man and he became a servant. That's what he became. And so that's this idea of this mutual submission is that even if you're in authority, you have this sense of that I'm a servant in that authority. And so to me, that 521 before this is really important. And so what Paul's doing in, when we read Ephesians 6, 1 to 4, is he's telling us, each member of the family, what does that mutual submission look like? So he starts with children in verses 1 to 3, verses 1 to 3, where in verse 1 he says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. That Greek word for children is a very technical word, very specific, and it, were, it refers to children who are still residing in the home and who are old enough to understand instruction. Um, the age range of this Greek word would have been early elementary to late teens. That's the age range when they heard this word that they had thought of. So that's the age range of children that he's telling to obey. And he's calling clearly for obedience to children who are at home. As long as you are in your parents' home, that is the way you show mutual submission is by obeying your parents. This is actually quite significant because in the Roman Empire, in Rome, you had to obey your father until he died or turned 60 years old. That was, the, that was what was expected in society. And the age, average age range of death was around 40. So for most people, you had to obey your father your whole life, whether you were under his home roof or whether you were not. And Paul is radically changing that by only directing it uh, to people who live inside of the home. The Bible actually expects that children will at some point leave their home. In, in chapter 5, verse 29, he talks about a man will leave his mother and father and will cling to a wife referencing Genesis chapter 2. So it's expected in the Bible that at some point you move out from under their authority, at which time obedience is not what is required. But for those that are at home, Paul's really clear. Obey. Obey. The parallel passage in Colossians 3.20 says, obey in everything. That's pretty specific. Um, or as we used to tell our children when they were young, obedience is doing what you're told, when you're told it, with the right attitude. So essentially, that's what he's saying to children who are living at home. And Paul gives two motives for the command. Look in verse 1, two motives. First, he says, in the Lord. He's saying, do this for the Lord's sake as a reflection of your love and obedience to him. Like, let the motivation of obedience be that you love and respect Jesus, that that's where that's coming from, that it's rooted in that. In Colossians 3.20, again, the parallel passage, Paul says, do this because it pleases the Lord. It's pleasing to him. That should be your driving motivation as a child. And the second motivation, the end of verse 1, for this is right. It's just the right thing to do. I think pretty much everybody of every culture has agreed with that. But what I really love is Paul doesn't stop there, but he goes on to verse 2, which to me is so profound. He reinforces that command to obey by going beyond the command to obey and talking about something that's actually much larger and he's going to go from talking about the action of obedience to an attitude of heart that undergirds that obedience. And so in verse 2, he says this, honor your father and mother. And by doing that, he's really broadening the picture, and he's doing something I think that's really cool. He's quoting, he's going back to the Torah, and he's quoting the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20, verse 12. Um, at some point, I really want to preach on the Ten Commandments, because they're ten profound statements that, that are just bedrock in life. And if you will follow those 10 things, like the foundation of your life will be so strong and a society that does those things, that society will be strong. So I'm gonna wait to talk in depth about this honoring father and mother till then, but I do wanna say one kind of general thing about it. That the command to honor 
It is a universal command for all people, all times, all culture. But not only that, the command to honor is given to all children. If you have a parent, the command is is that you honor them. So I'm curious, is there anybody here who doesn't have a parent? Anybody willing to raise a hand and say, like, aliens brought, well, doesn't have a parent. Like, they may still be living, but didn't have a parent. Like, aliens dropped me here. Scotty beamed me down. And I mean, everybody here had a parent, right? Or parents. All of us had parents. And so in verse 2, he's extending the discussion from children at home to all children. So what does it mean to honor? Um, As I was looking up on that, here's what I found. It means to value highly, to show high regard for, to show respect, to treat with reverence and preciousness, to treat with dignity, to demonstrate loyalty, to help provide and look out for them as they age. It's an attitude of inward, genuine respect. That's what it means to honor. And so why did God in the Ten Commandments, why did he say honor God instead of obey? And then why does Paul reference that? Because again, Paul is now directing his conversation to all children. And I have two thoughts. The first is what I just said, that number one, that God never expected that children would stay in their parents' home their whole life and have to obey them. And so that would be a limited command, but the command to honor hits all children, no matter your age. Um... But secondly, if God had given in the Ten Commandments, if he'd said, obey your parents, the reality is we know some children are in homes. We've probably heard stories of these homes where parents actually ask their children to do things that are wrong or that are immoral or unethical. And that's why God doesn't say as a command in the Ten Commandments to obey your children. Because God clearly says in Acts we read that if anybody in authority over me asks me to do anything that violates the command of God, that I disobey them and I obey God instead of them. So that's why God doesn't say, Obey your parents in the Ten Commandments, but he says, honor them. So no matter who you are, it doesn't matter who your parents are, it doesn't matter what they like, what they're like, it doesn't matter your circumstances or the conditions of your home, every child is to treat their parents with honor as long as they live. And I would say even after they're gone, I think some of the people raise their hands because some of us don't have our parents anymore. But even after they're gone, we still, the way we talk about them is in a way that gives them honor. So, for adult children away from home, you you honor your parents in this way. There's a lot of adult children in here, right? This is how we honor our parents. For children that are in here right now, this is how, who are at home, this is how you honor your parents. Plus, you obey, because that's what the scripture says. And to any teens here, because I was a teen once, I had teens, uh, I finally get to use this comic that I've wanted to use for years, because uh, I love it. Um, teens were like, well, okay, I'll obey, but I don't have to respect them, right? I don't have to act like I care, right? I'm just going to be sullen and cold and look like I don't care. Um, I, you know, like this, I just love this. This is a, a, a teenage boy's, his emo- how his face shows all of his emotions, <laughs> that even the teens who, who this, it's so easy to fall into that, that I would say that um, that's not honoring and that obedience, your obedience always needs to flow from honor, okay? So am I the only one who thinks that's a really funny comic? I think that's really funny. Uh, maybe if you haven't had teens, uh, and not all my teens were that way, so I'm not saying that, but okay. Um, so here's what I want to tell you. What Paul is doing here is so unique in that world. It is so unique in that world because they were asking for lifelong obedience to their fathers. And Paul doesn't do that. He goes beyond obedience and he goes to honor um, 
because the reality is, is the obedience is assumed, subsumed inside of honor. Honor is the bigger and actually much more important concept. And so what he's asking is of not just children living at home, but he's asking of all children, all of us who have parents. He's calling us to a high standard, a heart attitude of honoring our parents. And how like Jesus, because Jesus on multiple occasions referenced that command to honor parents. And then Paul wraps up in verse 2, the rest of verse 2. He wraps up this section by adding the general promise um, that was mentioned. He says this is the first commandment with a promise. And then he, he quotes the promise. He changes it a little bit. I'm not going to reason this morning why um, his quoting of Deuteronomy 5.16. But I want you to know the promise carried two things, that it may go well with you so that you would have a quality of life and that you may enjoy long life on earth, so the quantity of life. Let me say this, though, for people in the Old Covenant, the Jewish people who made that covenant, literally it was a promise, and if you honored your parents, your life would go well, and you would live long. It was a promise in the Old Covenant. But the Old Covenant ended with Jesus, and that promise no longer exists. We all know people who are very honorable to their parents, who've had a really hard life and maybe died young, right? So for Paul, this is not a promise. It's more of a proverb. It's just a general statement of truth that if in families there is honoring of parents, that child will flourish, the family will flourish, a society that does that generally will flourish, but there are exceptions. So, okay. Now, then verse 4, Paul moves on to parents. He moves on to parents. Um, and look, in verse 4, it says this, fathers. In my NIV, there's a little note. There's a B, and if I look down, it says, or parents. Um, that word fathers can be used for both parents. You can look up later in Hebrews eleven twenty three. In the Greek, it just says fathers, but it clearly refers to both parents. So it could be used in that way. Um, and I think what he says in verse 4 applies to all parents. But I just have a sneaking suspicion, knowing that the way fathers and their culture interacted with their children, that he really was trying to direct special attention to the fathers here and dressing them in particular. So let me tell you about Roman fathers, if I may. In that time, fathers had extraordinary power. They were very rigid and absolute in their control of every single member of their household. There was actually a Roman law, and I'm not good at Latin, patria potestas, a Roman law that gave the father, who was called the, the pater familia, the head of that household, he had this official title that gave them unlimited authority over their whole household, total authority, even the power of life and death. A father for the smallest infraction could remove, could throw any member out of his household, including his wife. Um, he could sell into slavery anybody in his household, including his wife. And we have a lot of historical examples of that ha happening. He could kill anybody in his household or have killed anybody, including his wife. And there's historical examples of that. So as such, most Roman fathers, they were heavy-handed and they were authoritarian and accountable to nobody. So whichever the case, I mean, whether Paul is, you know, he's saying parents or he's directing to fathers, I just want you to know that what he's going to say and what we're going to read is revolutionary. It is totally revolutionary for that time, especially when you think of the fathers. And so here's what he says in verse 4. He's going to give a negative command and a positive. First is the negative. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Do not exasperate. That's a hard word to say also. I've been working on that all weekend. Uh, we'll just say frustrate, okay? Don't frustrate your kids. It means to irritate, to provoke to a high degree, to rouse to anger. 
and it suggests in the Greek that it's a repeated ongoing pattern of treatment that exasperates the child and gradually builds up in them anger. Um, the command simply is just don't treat them in a way that makes them angry or embittered. It's interesting, one commentator has noted that the person you, you would expect Paul to say don't exasperate would be to say to children, don't exasperate your parents. But he doesn't say that. He says to fathers, don't exasperate or frustrate your children. Again, in that parallel passage in Colossians 3, he adds this, fathers do not antagonize your children or they will become discouraged. So don't make them lose heart. Don't break their spirits. In other words, parents, fathers especially, need to exercise loving sensitivity and care in how they raise and interact with their children. So that all parents, all of us, we should weigh carefully our words to our kids, our behavior towards them, especially our attitudes, and even our looks. I mean, that reflects your attitudes, but even uh, just the looks that you give them, even if they do something wrong, you know. I'm going to get at the end of some application about all that. But, um, but even more important than the negative, Paul moves on to the positive. And he does this by drawing a really stark contrast. You see in verse 4, it says, instead. In the Greek, it's a very strong but. They've got kind of different but words, and they're different strengths. It's the really strong one. And he's saying, like, on the contrary to that, Walter Layfield says in his commentary, the opposite of exasperating your children is inspiring them. And that's what we're going to get to now. So it says, here's the positive command. Bring them up. And I'm going to get to the other words in a second. Bring them up. Uh, one thing I found fascinating this week as I'm looking at that is that exact same Greek word occurs earlier in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 29, where he's talking about husbands loving their wife, and he says, as a husband feeds and cares for his own body, and it's that same Greek word that's used there, and it's frequently translated nourish. In the New American Standard Version, it does translate it. It says, as a man nourishes and cherishes his body. So it really refers, this bring them up, uh, it refers to tender, nourishing care. Tender, nourishing care. And it refers to the nourishing of the whole person, the body, the soul, the mind, um, the emotions. And what's interesting is that word here, he adds something to it in the Greek that intensifies it even more than he used it with husbands up in chapter 5. And it means to nourish and develop with very careful attention. And I really love that insight. Is that not a very profound and powerful way to, for Paul to define your parenting task? You are called by God to nourish your children, to seek their well-being, to seek their flourishing. Is that not a high calling? To me, that, that is such a powerful image. So it's like, Paul, so how do I nourish? And then he tells us two things. We nourish them by providing training and providing teaching. Training and teaching. The first word in Greek, that training is a more general word. It was really important in that Greco-Roman world. They talked a lot about this world, um, this word. And it's more than teaching and like learning facts. It was the formation of the whole person, um, which involved training and discipline. Um, Steve, it was used frequently in athletics in that time. You know, when you talk about training and discipline as a coach, and if you just think, I mean, I, you'd have to talk to Steve, but there's so much involved in all of that, right? There's so much you're doing to help train your athletes. A lot of it's positive, but sometimes you have to correct, right? There's sometimes some of it's negative. Um, so here's what, uh, here's what Paul is saying. 
So as a parent, a parent who seeks to nourish their children, you should first work to make your family and your home, we should work to make our family and home a training ground, a training ground. And as I thought about this, I thought about my own parenting. To me, that's a place that trains our children into the way of Jesus. And that means that we're intentionally creating environments and exercises. We're creating patterns and practices. We're, we have reinforcing rituals and routines, and we have appropriate rules and regulations. To me, that's like a training environment, right? Steve, like for you, again, forgive me, but um, you've got certain rules and regulations on your team, but you're also you're trying to create whole environments, right, that form them in the right kind of athlete. And to me, that environment, the patterns, the rituals, routines is so important. It's things like, you know, making sure you have the daily meal together. It's a regular family time of worship. Somehow you're praying with your children regularly. You're in the Word regularly. Um, it's, to me, it's regular, it's regular attendance with your children at the, the community of faith because this is so important. Um, it's prayers at meals and not just, you know, a perfunctory thing that you're really like giving thanks at that time. To me, it's bedtime rhythms. It's the things you talk about at night. It's praying with them before they go to bed. Um, that kind of thing. So training to what? For Pat and I, one of our main training goals was Luke 2.52, where it says, Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. Again, this nourishing, this training is for the whole person. And so we were striving to help our children grow intellectually, physically, socially, and spiritually. And I put it in this, this quadrant form or this format because we were, um, two summers ago, we were in Colorado and we visited Amber Shrotland. Amber and Josh went here a while back and moved. And her husband had died of cancer, pretty young. And we were just at her house seeing how she was doing. And we were sitting in her kitchen and I noticed something on the wall. And on the wall for all three of her children, she had one sheet of paper that was this exact quadrant that had that verse. And it had those four things. And she, every semester, would, with the child, would talk and they would pick one physical goal, one social goal, one intellectual goal, or wisdom understanding goal, not just facts, and one spiritual goal that that child was working on. And I was so impressed because I'm like, here is a person that's training, creating a training environment in their home for their children. Um, so that's to me what that training is. And then the second word that he says, that instruction um, in our text, the Greek word literally means to put in mind, it means to teach, to counsel. So as a parent who seeks to nourish their children, you should second work to make your family and your home a teaching place, a training ground and a teaching place. And that word is focused more on verbal instruction, things like imparting knowledge, again, more importantly, wisdom, teaching principles, giving counsel and advice, it's motivating and encouraging to write living with my words. It's a lot of gently and consistently reminding. Isn't a lot of parenting reminding? It's a lot of that. Um, it is providing warnings when you see them going down the wrong road. Um, there is in this word the idea of admonishment, so offering needed correction and reproof, that I'm, I'm directing them away with my teaching away from a wrong path, and I'm redirecting them to the right path. But I really want to double down even with this idea of teaching because we live in a culture that everything's about facts, that this is about more than facts and knowledge. This is about teaching my children right principles, right values, and right loves, that they are loving the right things. That was always our goal with our kids. We didn't want them to just know God. We wanted them to love Him, right? 
to love him with all of their heart, their soul, their strength, and their mind. And then Paul ends with this, that all of this, this nourishing them with the training and with teaching, it's to be of the Lord. So it's according to his word, it's according to his power, it's according to his grace, and it's all for his glory and his honor and his fame. That's the end goal of all of it. And I think the end goal of all of it, too, is ultimately that our children intimately know him and have a relationship with him as Savior and Lord. Is that not true? That's the thing we most long for our children. All right, I'm going to kind of start landing this plane. I really love this passage. Um, as I said earlier, it was revolutionary for their time. Um, there is no parallel to what Paul did with his household cold. There's no parallel in any ancient literature. It went totally against the grain of that culture. Paul was, in a sense, he was literally, he was redefining family roles within the home, Roman Empire. Timothy Gombas, who's kind of a scholar in this, said Paul's exhortations are radical and that they directly confront and subvert the social structures of first century society. What he was doing with the family when you know Jesus was just radical. And I want to tell you, at that time, I said it, I hinted at it earlier, but the household codes of that time never addressed the father. Never. Never spoke to him. So to a Roman father who was reading this for the first time, who had become a follower of Jesus, they would have been totally shocked to be addressed in a household code. And that he was totally redefining the way they looked at their authority and the way they exerted it. So, man, uh, parents who are here, you know, dads and moms, this whole thing to me, I just love the way Paul says that in verse 4. That idea that I am to nourish my children by creating a training ground and a teaching place. I mean, is there no higher call than that? And I just call all of us as parents into that. But I also want to say, while that's a high call, and I just love the way Paul talks about it, I've been down that road, and I know it is a difficult call, isn't it? And I know this morning, I even say that. I could be like, I could remember myself, if, I, if this was 26 years ago, I would have felt the weight of that, like, whoa, nourish my kids and creating this training ground, this teaching environment. Um, so just, I think if you're a parent, you know this. This is impossible without the Lord's help. Is that not right as a parent? You know that. Don't you feel that in your gut? So I really want to challenge you. As a parent, live in dependence upon him. When I look back, if I could have talked to the earlier me, I, I would have said, be even more dependent than you think you need on him for this task. And pray more than you ever think you need to pray. Pray for your children daily. Pray for strength. Pray for wisdom. It takes all of that. Pray for grace. That's why we sing so much about grace. Parenting needs grace so much to happen well. So I just want to challenge you. I know it's tough. And this, this is, you read this and it's like, wow, that's really weighty. But God called us to it and he can empower you to do it. So I, I love this text because he's giving a high level of responsibility to everybody in the family, and he's calling for respect from everybody in the family, both children's and parents. And Paul's saying that the home is to be a place of love and honor and respect. Um, sometimes Pat helps work me through these things. She texted me. This morning, and she said, if I were to like summarize Paul, I would take the words of Jesus and say, you treat people the way you want to be treated. And if children would do that to parents, 
And the parents would do that to children. That's essentially what Paul is saying, that we treat each other with this mutual love and respect. So appreciated that text she sent. And I want to tell you, can you imagine in the Roman Empire, if a family came to Jesus and their family relationships radically changed to conform to this in the midst of what most families were like on a street in Rome, can you imagine how they would have stood out in that culture as a shining light in darkness? Can you imagine? And I want to tell you, we've t- we know it, in our culture, families are falling apart. And if we will live this, can you imagine how our families could stand out and people could be like, you know, those families that seem to be doing a lot better, they all tend to follow Jesus, or most of them tend to follow Jesus. So I really think we can impact culture. And I want to tell you, when I read this, especially knowing the Roman context, this whole text rings with truth to me. But not only that, when I read this, I just say, that is good. And the way Paul talks about family, the way God talks about it is beautiful. That's beautiful. So we read with first century eyes and we ask 21st century questions. So here's the application. I do want to apply this. First, I want to speak to children that are here. If you're still living under the roof with your parents, there's a few in here. Obey, because that's what Paul calls, and honor. But I really want to talk to the adult children here. And as I was thinking about this this week, I thought, you know what? I have never in my life heard anybody do a sermon where they talked about how does an adult child honor their parents. No, no direction, no understanding. I had some ideas. So this week I texted 12 couples that I respected and trusted, most of them further in the adult parenting journey than Pat and I are. I mean, all of them, but one couple who's about the same age. And I asked them, if, tell me, how, can, how do you feel honor from your children, your adult children? And there were six things that appeared commonly in the list, and I want you to look at it. It's on this sheet. Here are the six things that they said. Value and seek your parents' wisdom. Show interest in your parents and take the initiative in relating to them. Offer to help your parents with needs in their life. Acknowledge and express to your parents what they did well what they did well. I have a little note on here to Isaiah 49, 18. I heard Tim Keller talking about uh, that honoring your parents, and he had this verse in Isaiah where, where Isaiah says that in new creation, when everything's made right, it says, all your children gather and come to you as surely as I live, declares the Lord. You will wear them as ornaments. And he talked about that God has put into the heart of parents like that, that we just long for our children to, to reflect God and to reflect us well and to kind of wear them as an ornament. And so when you as a child, when you say like, hey, you did this well, you're actually allowing that to happen. Um, So hearing those words is actually important to an adult parent. Forgive your parents. None of us did this right. We failed in many things, did many things wrong. So the forgiveness is really important. And carry on your parents' spiritual legacy by pursuing your faith. That was the last one. And here's what I want you to do this morning for the adult children that are here. I mean, this is everybody, except maybe like a few of us who don't have our parents anymore. But I want you to check the two boxes on here that you feel like you need to do better at honoring your parents. If you were to say the two things I need to do better to honor my parents as an adult child, they would be, and I want you to check two of them. And then I want to get a little more specific. I'd like to ask you this week, 
to put into practice, because that's what we're supposed to do, one. And I want you to circle one of those and say, this week, I'm going to do this one for my parents to show honor to them. So I'd like you to do that. And then finally, I want to talk to the parents who are here specifically. But I'm telling you, even if you're not a parent, you may have kids someday. For you to think through this list, I think is significant. You can ask the questions, where do I lean on these? I know there are some, some singles who are up in age who are never going to have kids, but all of us are going to be around children. God will put, bring children into our sphere of influence, and we can impact them. These things apply to anybody, but especially parents. And it says, how not to exasperate your children and so I did some research this week, and I was looking like, what are the main ways parents can exasperate, frustrate their children? And there was a bunch, but I came up with nine, and let me just quickly run through these. By, being capri by having capricious exercise of authority, that you're up and down all the time, you're moody. Nobody knows what to expect from you day in, day out. And your commands and rules really depend on the mood that you're in. And I want to tell you, if that's how you parent, you create, a, you create an atmosphere of total instability, and children cannot thrive and flourish in that environment. So if that's you, I just want to tell you, just be more even-keeled. Seek the Lord. Get help. Become more even-keeled. Another way you can frustrate children is by unnecessary rules and regulations. Um, parents like this tend to be super serious, very intense, very high expectations, right? And tend to have an overabundance of rules, um, unreasonable demands, super strict. The problem with this parent, somebody once told me this. They asked this question I found profound. Are you raising a Pharisee or are you raising a lover of Jesus? And when you're so rules-focused, I want to tell you, you're, you could very easily be raising a Pharisee. So to those people, I just say, hey, focus on the relationship. Get off the rules so much. I know a parent, a family I really respect, and they had one rule in their family. And their kids turned out really well and followed Jesus. And the one rule was this, we respect everybody in this family. And then out of that clode other things, but that was the one rule. They were like a one-rule family. Um, I'm not saying you have to do that. Negativity is another one. You know, unending petty correction, always focused on the negative. Again, usually these parents have super high expectations. Children are never complimented, encouraged. All they hear is negative words, those strong looks, right, nagging all the time. They can just see it in your face that you're never pleased. And if that's you, I just want to say, chill out. <laughs> Embrace grace because God is a God of grace. I told our kids about four or five years ago, we were sitting around the table, and we were getting at the end of our run with them being in the house, and I said, you know, just if I were to go back and do one thing different in my parenting, besides the prayer and all that, just in how I related to you, I just would have chilled out a lot more. Because you can take that weight seriously, right, of raising children, but you can take it so serious that you just get super serious. So chill out, embrace grace. That laissez-faire approach to your parenting. These are the parents we know, no rules, no boundaries, the kids rule the nest. They're the ones in control. A lot of times these parents are trying to be their kid's best friend. They can't tell their children no. Um, I want to tell you, a parent, if you're like this, part of the reason they push boundaries so much with you is because children actually need boundaries to feel secure. And the fact that you're such a laissez-faire parent, if this is you, part of the reason they push so much is because they're just longing for you to say no and set some boundaries. So to that parent, I just say, live into your authority. Overprotective parents, you know, the ones who are the helicopter parent, now it's the snowplow parent. You go in front of your kids and make sure everything is perfect in their life. You don't ever let them take risk. You're always, you don't want them hurt. You're just always hovering over them, living in total control. To that parent, I would say just relax, 
Let go. Let them grow up. Showing favoritism. Playing favorites, if that's the case, give each child individual tuition. I'm not saying be fair. If I, I was up here a fifth Sunday and I talked to the kids, you can't expect fair. But just give the individual tension each child needs. Some parents are just pushing achievement all the time, wanting them to perform, wanting them to perform, do better, do more, do more. A lot of times that's the parent trying to live their life through them. But I want to tell you, it frustrates a child, and they never feel like they can do enough. So if you're that kind of parent, just chill out, back off. And then being distant dis disengaged, a lot of fathers this way. There's a crisis in fathering. A lot of distant, disengaged fathers. Mothers can be that way. Don't really give the love and support and affection. Just come home, sit and watch TV, read the paper, except nobody reads the paper anymore. Gets on Facebook. I don't know. I don't get on Facebook. Get on the internet. To that parent, I say get engaged and be involved. And then the last one is failing to let them grow at a normal pace. Especially for young children, like zero to five, they just developmentally, they're just going to be kids, so let kids be kids. Kind of know what their developmental stage and just let them be kids. Not everything a kid does that's small is rebellion or it's against you. It's just they're being kids. So have grace. Chill out again. Grace, to me, that's so important. So quickly, parents, I'd like you to pick. If you were to pick two of these that you most need to work on, I want to know what would they be. And I want you to check the two things you need to work on to not exasperate, exasperate your children. And then what I asked of the all of us who have a, who are adult children, I really want you to circle one of the two things you've checked to say this week, I'm going to share this with my spouse. We're going to talk about this. And with the help of the Lord, I'm going to work on that one because that's my struggle. So 12th, I, I just call all of us to let's, let us with passion seek to live the word of the Lord, that we would create homes as parents where we are nourishing our children and not frustrating them, but we're nourishing them by creating a training ground and a teaching place for the sake of God, so they will grow to love him. And can you imagine, can, again, can you imagine if we became that kind of place, what kind of light we would be in this world right now? So let me pray for all of us. Father, I pray for the children that are here. I know obeying isn't always easy, but it's the right thing to do. I pray that you would strengthen them in doing that. I pray for all the adult children here who have parents that are still living, Lord, that you would help us to learn to better honor them um, with our lives that's appropriate to them. And for the parents that are here, Lord, that is not an easy task, but it is such a wonderful task you've given us to nourish our children, and I pray that you would give us all wisdom in that. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. And as you leave, I'm just going to put up um, two books I found really helpful with that training ground. If you're like, how do I make my home a training ground? Two awesome books. Um, we'll just leave that up for a little while, but I really point you to those. All right, 12th, you are sent this week to live as a hell, hell, healthy, whole, <laughs> go live hell in your family, to live as a healthy, whole family for the glory of God to his fame, okay? So 12th, you're sent.